Welcome to Virtual Economy, a podcast about the business of games for the rest of us. We're your hosts. I'm Michael Footer. And I'm Amanda Farrow. On each episode, we'll cover the biggest business beats and bring in expert commentary from lawyers, analysts, and industry pros. This is episode 140. Eat we wise from your grave. You know, it's spooky season. Gamers of a certain age will understand this. <laughs> but also it's spooky season. I mean, we could have gone with like, I live again. And then that's for Army of Darkness fans and Blood fans. That's true. Like It works for both. It does work for both. Yeah. But it's still spooky season. It's still spooky season. Welcome to spooky season and to a, I don't know, this isn't a super heavy episode. We've got some stuff to talk about. Yeah, we got some stuff, but we'll also move through this pretty quick, quickly, I think. Yeah, we even have a FAFO award today. Oh, one that has been brewing for literally three and a half years. Yeah, yeah. We just spoiled it. For yeah. Me. Oh, no. Oh, no. I'm pretty sure everybody already saw this coming. Though. Everybody knows what this is. Yeah. All right. What do we got first, though? Oh, man, I don't. We're going to talk a lot about Twitch real quick. Just real quick. Man, they just keep fudging it up. That's what they do. That's what they do. That's what they do. That's and if we didn't already have a FAFA winner, I'm pretty sure Twitch would have been it. Yeah. Again. I Again. mean, have they ever actually won it or have they just been They've like... They've been nominated for a FAFO. They have not won a FAFO as of yet. They are not Gary Bowser, our three-time FAFO award winner. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this is a whole Jeremy Barramy thing. And it's like, like it. there's the whole Jeremy Barry thing, and then there's the 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 portrait of the actor, the character who was eventually played by Michael McKean mm -hmm. in The Good Place, the one who was like perfect. Yeah. 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 It's a true Jeremy Barry up Twitch, in here. Twitch is the bad place. Twitch is the bad. Twitter's place. the bad place. There's a lot of bad places. You know what the medium place is? I don't know what's the medium place. Mr. Mike's Steakhouse. <laughs> You know what, folks? One day we'll explain that joke, but today is not that today day. Amanda, what do we got day. first? Okay, after like two minutes of vamping about literally nothing, let's talk about what's going on with Twitch. So Twitch tried to bury an absolutely scathing report about its failure to protect children with even more bad news. But before we get there, let's talk about the scathing report let, first. Let us talk about this scathing report. So we are no strangers to talking about child safety on this even on this podcast it's something i write about for crying out yeah i mean let's talk about your bona fides real quick what bona fides are we talking about exactly uh all right so uh former editor-in-chief of super parent you have recently authored your first of many books on the subject indeed uh you are uh an expert in parenting and the interwebs i am uh you have advised a number of parents on how to better implement uh, screen time protocols and and process in their own homes i've even consulted on our home you have con <laughs> is it considered consulting when you are <laughs> when i'm a parent yes when you're know. an employee of this ho household yeah well yeah that's fair okay cool All right. so anyway this is something i've been writing and talking about for about as long as i've been a parent so let's talk about it even more so Child predation is something that happens in online spaces and it is getting alarmingly bigger and meaner and more prolific and there platform. are more vehicles. There, there are more are pathways more vehicles, yeah. into that 
I remember when badness. it was like when I was a kid, it was chat rooms, mm-hmm. right? When back when we had chat rooms, we had to be really, really careful about who it was that we were talking to. Mm-hmm. Right? Now these days you've Twitch uh-huh. that's being used by children under 18 because in order to comply with COPA, they just have to be over 13 in order right. to use the platform. Right, but they're also it is not hard to circumvent COPA. You no. can lie about your birthday. Absolutely. And we're going to get there because I think that this is in part a Twitch failure and in part a parenting failure. Yes. So child predators have been tracked using Twitch to groom children in a two-year study conducted by an unnamed researcher that specializes in analyzing live streaming services. All right, this let's talk about that from first. Bloomberg. Yeah, and it's behind a paywall. Uh, there are ways through that paywall if if you know how, but uh, we're going to break down what the report said. I'm a little – you you mentioned this this morning when we were talking about it before we started recording. Uh, to have a researcher completely unnamed seems very strange. Well, I can understand wanting to protect a researcher's anonymity to ensure that there's no – blowback on their personage mm-hmm. especially online and especially given the vitriol um it is a little strange that the researchers organization or academic organ it like yeah. institution was not named um this is a weird one this one this one was really strange and i mean it could be that it's completely benign and that's fine it doesn't it doesn't change the tenor of the conversation. It's just something worth knowing. Yeah, and this is a report on Bloomberg, so we are relying on the fact that Bloomberg has fact checkers and copy editors and editors. That Four w- editors saw this piece. Yeah. So, so our... So we are relying on the on Bloomberg Bloomberg's process here, which I can I don't feel poorly about trusting. No, either do it I. Is rigorous. We did want to flag this that it's very strange that there is no identifying information about who conducted this study or what institution conducted this, study. or to like I don't know verify the research. Yeah, that's that's really weird. Like clearly this clearly this research hasn't been published yet. Maybe that's what it is. It's protecting the fact that the research hasn't been published in a peer-reviewed journal. I mean, there's a there's a number. There's of a lot of things here that that kind of have us cocking and it, it's an eyebrow. Okay. It's not the end of the world. It, again, it doesn't change the tenor of the conversation. So ultimately, what this what this piece did was break down what has been going on with regards to safety on the Twitch platform. It's specifically about Twitch. This yes. is not talking about YouTube problems or Facebook um, gaming or <laughs> TikTok or And those Instagram sites all Live. have their own problems. Every, honestly, every social media platform has its own set of issues. Yep. Many of them can be tied back to child safety. Mm-hmm. So it does go, so we'll we'll get into like the the high level points here. So Twitch... For all of the things that it continues to do wrong, um, according to the Bloomberg piece, Twitch has quadrupled the size of its law enforcement response team, and they are currently working with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're also working with Tech Coalition, which is an industry-wide alliance combating online child sex abuse. All right, good. So it's not to say that they're doing nothing, but much like the problems that parents many tech savvy parents including us have a huge problem with is letting their kids play roblox yeah roblox is a problem so live predation 
has always been a problem, right? It's been mm-hmm. a problem everywhere. But apparently, according to this research, there are indications that the pandemic made it worse because <sighs> oh, children and teenagers were on their phones, they were on their computers, um, you know, using them for entertainment because they weren't able to see their friends, they weren't able to do anything, and and it's that's not surprising. So, according to the report, um, child sexual abuse online skyrocketed 73%. That's terrible. From 2019 to 2021, according to NCMEC, which is the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And they increased 1,125% on Twitch alone. Now, the Twitch spokesperson attributes the influx of these reports to the company's improved detection methods. Okay. Which, honestly, I'll probably buy. Okay. I would buy that. Right. Because if there weren't ways to flag it in the past, there are ways to flag it now. And they do have a number of reporting methods that you can use. And they are flagging content before it gets to, to users, mm-hmm. depending on what's happening. Now, how this, how this child sex abuse... Um, piece really started was you know there there are kids that stream in just chatting they stream in roblox they stream in minecraft and on fortnite those are those tend to be the the four big categories that kids hang out in and there were people adults going into their chat and being like oh hey can you move the camera so i can see your legs or can you do tiktok dances for your audience and they a lot of these kids are kind of emulating their favorite streamers. So mm-hmm. if they don't know any better, then they don't know any better. Right. So here's the here's the the spokesperson from Twitch. Quote, preventing child harm is one of our most fundamental responsibilities as a society. We do not allow children under 13 to use Twitch, and preventing our service from being used for harm is one of our biggest priorities. We know that online platforms can be used to cause harm to children, and we have made extensive investments over the last two years to better stay ahead of bad actors and prevent any users who may be under 13 from accessing Twitch. Hmm. It's an interesting statement. Yeah. Especially given a day off Twitch, which we reported on, was it last year or the year before? I think it was last year. Yes, I think so. Where we sat down with Wreck-It Raven to have a conversation. Yep about a day off twitch absolutely um and a day off twitch was was organized to protest racism transphobia misogyny and overall bigotry consistently enabled on the platform through inaction on twitch's part yeah just to refresh your memory there was a an enormous wave of hate raids yeah that was going on and twitch just was simply unequipped to deal with it uh and therefore some of the biggest streamers that were live on the front page Yep. And just to be clear, if you're not if you're not familiar with how Twitch streaming works, the front page is like the best spot to ha- it's the best and the worst spot to have because it's the best spot because you get the most eyeballs. It's the worst spot because you need a team of like ten moderators to keep things in control. Mm-hmm. It's a really tough thing to do. And during Pride Month, during Women's History, uh, Women's History Month, Black History Month, um. AAPI month like I mean it's uh and uh I guess Latin I guess uh, gosh what what month is that um it it's actually it's it? middle September to the middle of October yeah so it's, it? I think it's now sorry I forgive me I'm still I'm still getting I'm still getting used to um 
I'm still getting getting used to all of the the various months. <laughs> so the my point with all of this is that it's really challenging to deal with that as it is. And then the hate raids on top of it made it that much harder to even get the attention of, you know, of growing organically, of like, of, of like-minded streamers, of growing organically, because a lot of the time with when it comes to raids, you raid people that are either your friends or friends of friends, right? Or people that you're interested in giving them some, giving them a numbers bump or, or whatever. But when it came to the hate raids, like you had to turn that off. Mm-hmm. You had to turn off raids from, in, from like random people because you had to protect yourself. Yep. And that stifled growth because that's probably, that's like streaming community management 101 or community creation 101 is you don't turn that off. Mm-hmm. You keep that on in case, you know, a big streamer wants to come in and say hi and bring their community. Right. And, you know, the the idea there is people it's follow you. Like you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it. that's what it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. So all of this is to say that the problems existed before, the problems will exist again. And until we see a combination of platforms really standing behind and combating the the rampant ex, like exploitation of users and we're not just talking about children we're talking about anybody who's a minority as well mm-hmm. but when it comes to kids this is also parent like partially a parenting issue it is yeah and and this is this kind of comes back to know what your kids are doing online Know what your kids are playing, know who they're talking to, know what communities they are becoming part of. And it's a matter of just keeping the lines of communication open. And this is something that that we have struggled with with one of our kids. Mm-hmm. This is something that we have worked very hard to just bake into screen time with our youngest kids. Which has been successful mm-hmm. so far. I mean, now that our son, you know, is 11 years old, he's online more often. He is, you know, talking with friends and he's playing video games with friends of friends and everything like that. And he's watching YouTube videos because I opened that door for him. But he also talks to us all the time about what he's watching and who he's interested in, like who not talking to necessarily, But what kind of content he's interested in engaging with. And for the most part, let me tell you, our son's taste in YouTube videos is so wholesome. He loves watching rich YouTubers give their money away. Yeah. He loves it. He loves watching people helping other people. It is his favorite thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So this is partially a parenting issue. Know what your kids are doing. It's so important. And you can do very small things in order to ensure that you have some measure of control there. And part of it is installing the right applications. And if you want to know what some of those applications are that we use in this house, in order to just keep an eye on things, you know, just uh, hit me up on Twitter and I'll, I'll let you know. So this Bloomberg report hit on September 21st. And it was very strange because in the wee hours of the morning East Coast, Twitch pushed out an update to revenue split. And we talked about that last week, right? I believe so, yes. So we talked about that, but there has been more that's kind of, you know, kind of emerged about this. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that they used this report to bury 
the or to try to bury the Bloomberg bury the conversation or change the conversation away from the Bloomberg report, which they obviously knew was coming because the appropriate thing to do when you're covering a story is you don't ask for comment after the story has gone live. You have to give the subject an opportunity to comment and give them a reasonable amount of time. You don't want to give them too much, but you also don't want to sandbag them. You don't want to say, oh, I need a comment in an hour. Yeah, it's yeah. usually I need a comment by end of day. Yeah. And then the piece is going live. But I will say this. When a subject turns around, a subject of a story, when a company turns around and tries to bury your story with different bad news, um, that ruins trust. And it does. as you are, as you as a company are running into a situation where everybody looks at this, everybody sees you do it. And they're not going to give you the benefit of the doubt in the future. No. That window's going to get narrower. You're not going to have the opportunity to comment on stories. Yep, so absolutely true. So uh, that's a that's a great segue to talk about the revs the rev share split. But we gotta we gotta look, give a little bit of context around why it is that it's so important. And we've talked about this with the pandemic boom, right? Mm -hmm. We talked about it with regards to money in mergers and acquisitions. We've talked about it in terms of new studios popping up. We've talked about it in terms of inflation making that harder. And entering a global recession is about to make everything pretty impossible. However, we've talked about, we've only talked about it marginally when it comes to live streaming. Mm -hmm. I've talked about it on Twitter. I've talked, Mike and I have talked about it a bunch. The pandemic boom was really good for content creators as well, right? The mm -hmm. numbers, numbers go up. Yep, numbers have come back down. Numbers are back down to pre-pandemic numbers yeah. in a lot of cases, mm -hmm. which is an, makes it a really, really ugly time out there for content creators trying to make money, mm -hmm. which is what leads us into this conversation yes. about RevShare. So Twitch has been using, I don't know, some fuzzy math. It's pretty and we'll, fuzzy. And we'll talk about the fuzzy math. We will. So just, ugh, it's so frustrating. <laughs> it's actually at the very end of this conversation about the fuzzy math itself. Mm -hmm. And so that's what that's what it's doing to defend its rev share, uh, rev split changes. So every streamer knows that the biggest creators on their given platform are given sweetheart deals, yeah. right? The sweetheart deals happen on every streaming platform, whether that's YouTube gaming, Facebook gaming, or Twitch. Yep. You're a bigger streamer. You can negotiate a better deal. Exactly. And it's much better than the rest of us get, which is 90% of, you know, Twitch affiliates and partners we only get 50-50. Yep. Well, now it's, yeah. So. <laughs> Everybody's getting punched in the jimmies. Yeah. So Dan Clancy, in all of his out-of-touch Twitch president glory, took to Twitch's blog to explain why, after all this time, the, quote, premium subscription deals that they'd offered to select creators would be toast. Done. No more. Great. Right? Yep. So here's what, what the blog post says. Quote, for subscriptions, we use a baseline revenue share of 50-50 on the net revenue from those earnings. The vast majority, I actually, I want to talk about 50-50 on the net revenue thing, but the vast majority of Twitch streamers have these terms in their agreement. However, for some time, we did offer standard agreements with premium subscription terms to select streamers as they grew larger. So this wasn't for the biggest streamers. It was up and comers. Yeah. People who were on a rapid upward trajectory this isn't something we've talked about publicly but since but such deals are common knowledge within the streamer community correct we yep. like everybody knows it is the worst kept secret or it was the worst kept secret 
because everybody knows somebody. Right. But here's the thing. That's also part of the problem. It's like, okay, everybody knows it. It's an open secret. Why don't you just address this head on? Exactly. And make and bake this into your process because there wasn't a formal process around it. It was. It was just something that they did. Yep. It was just off the cuff. Uh, historically, we didn't have a consistent framework to determine who would receive these deals and, and when. Over a year ago, we made the decision to stop offering these premium agreements to new streamers not already on these terms. For these streamers still on these premium deals, we're adjusting the deal so that they retain their 70-30 revenue share split for the first 100000 earned through subscription revenue. Revenue above 100000 will be split at the standard 50-50 share split. We're announcing this change now, but it won't go into effect until after June 1, 2023. After that point, streamers will only be affected once their existing contract is up for renewal. All streamers with these terms have already received this information and more via email, and we'll make sure to give them exact updates and timelines as we get closer to June 1, 2023. All right. I... I, I I have very uh, salty language. You do have very salty language in here. It's appropriate salty language. But But the... the, the the short the, the short version is that there they get 50-50. I want to talk about 50-50 for a second. Because we talk about platform fees in general, right? right? And this is a platform fee. This is a fee for producing and distributing your content on the Twitch platform. Steam charges 30%. Mm-hmm. Microsoft charges on Xbox 30%. Sony charges 30%. Nintendo charges 30%. Epic charges 12%. Yes. Twitch says that it is entitled to 50% of your revenue by you distributing content on its platform. When you put that up against other platforms, and I'm not talking about platforms in the streaming space, I'm talking about other content distribution platforms, 50-50 is bullshit. It's absolute bullshit. What is Twitch doing to... To earn 50% of well, your revenue. I mean, they're not they, they're not taking care of age gating correctly. They're Correct. not taking care of content moderation correctly. Correct. They do not provide additional moderators if you end up on the front page. Nope. They are not protecting people of color. Nope. They're not protecting people that identify as LGBTQIA. Correct. So what are they doing? Taking your money. Yeah, they're taking your money. And also this net revenue thing, because I, I would like to see... So if I pay somebody a $4.99 monthly subscription, what are they calling net revenue? What are they taking out of that? I now, are they talking about the amount you pay in tax and they're, and they're just pulling the tax out? Because when we talk about gross versus net, $4.99, as far as I'm concerned, if you if uh, unless they're talking about, hey, we charge you $4.99 plus tax... The tax is, that's the gross, and we're taking the tax out and paying it to the government, and then the rest is net. Okay, fine. But I think using net and gross here is a, is a little misleading, but that seems to be the thing, because there's a lot of shit in here that is extremely misleading. It really is. It really, really is. And I think that the big issue that we have here is that Twitch has not given, they, they don't give enough when it comes mm-hmm. to when it comes to their their platform fees give everyone 70 30 every creator on that platform deserves 70 30 period yep twitch is not going to do it by the way they have come out and said there was a user voice okay go for it do it so streamers have been banging on the proverbial doors at twitch to get them to change the rev share split to 70 30 for all creators right Mm -hmm. over twenty two 
thousand folks have voiced their concerns on user voice, according to Eurogamer. If you're not familiar with user voice, it is the platform or the piece of Twitch's website where you can go and start polls and get people to support different things. It's essentially that's um, how we got identity tags. Exactly, on exactly. So it's uh, it's a it's essentially a petition tool yeah. specifically for Twitch and. Twitch has said this is the way to communicate to them. This exactly. is this is the way because this is what they track. This shows very clear metrics. Uh, I believe you have to log in. Yep. So yep. they know that so that you can't be padded. Exactly. So it has to be you log in through your Twitch account. Mm -hmm. So Salty Wyvern was the person that started this, mm -hmm. and it was recently closed by Twitch yep. for the and this is what they offered as the comment. For the primary request of increasing the rev share split to 70-30, the standard revenue share for subscriptions is 50-50, and we do not have plans to change the standard revenue share. To add insult to injury, Twitch is definitely using some very fuzzy math to justify it all. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty gross. So, Mike, yes. since you're the math guy, yeah. why don't you take us through why this is so fuzzy? So one of the things that that I flagged when I was reading this was that they said, well, here's how much it costs for us to deliver high definition, low latency, always available live video. Uh, so live video, they say for a 100 concurrent streamer, uh, concurrent user streamer. So that's if you have a hundred people watching it at the same time, which by the way is the upper, upper echelon. Yeah. Upper, upper, upper echelon. So, That's like 1% of Twitch. So for someone who streams 200 hours a month, they say that the costs are more than $1,000 per month. Now, here's where I call bullshit. Because they're using public-facing numbers. And this is where you need to remember that Twitch is owned by Amazon. Mm-hmm. So when you are marketing your services to an external partner, you have costs associated with that. And now I am not saying... That there are no costs. And I'm not saying that Twitch doesn't have to pay those costs. Because when you have uh, a subsidiary or you have even multiple programs within the same company. And one program is using the services of another program. You have what's called an internal transfer. So Twitch has to pay AWS, for instance. Sure. X amount of dollars. But those that rate is going to be severely discounted, most likely, for Twitch. They're not going to so. charge the market rates internally. They have, I'm like, ev this is normal business practice where you have an internal rate, but you're covering your costs. Because remember, AWS, when they're marketing that service externally, they're looking to make money on it. Mm -hmm. So if they have the capacity here and they're just, and they're just providing services to an internal partner, I mean, they, they need to, A not create a situation where the internal partner is like, well, why don't I just go to some other hosting? Cause you're charging me a thousand dollars a month for this person. But this other company is coming in with a competitive rate. You don't ever want to have that conversation internally. Not so you ever. charge them, you charge them a discount rate that represents covering your costs. And that's it. And that's it. So this whole thing is bullshit and, it, and it's transparent. It's really bad. It's, it's really, really terrible. And there's no reason for it. But the biggest issue is what's the competition? The competition is YouTube gaming. I don't want to be on YouTube gaming. Nobody wants the to The competition be on is Facebook gaming. I don't want to be on Facebook either. I barely exist on Facebook as a human being. Like it's it's somewhere yeah. that I get to sh like cross share stuff I post on Instagram and that's basically it. Mm -hmm. You know, and IG Live and TikTok are not good options. Not for not the, for this. It, this is long this is long form. 
Yeah. Right. That's for good short form snippets. So this, this is not it's a nightmare. This is also this is just such bullshit. So they and they actually said we use the published rates from Amazon Web Services Interactive Video Service. Yep. Like they used published rates. They're not paying published rates. No. This is disingenuous. And and the fact that they didn't think anybody would would poke at this is just insulting. Well, and it's it's not even just analysts and journalists that are poking at this. Twitch users and streamers are like, y'all. This is ridiculous. And you can see it in all of the various posts that were on user voice Mm -hmm. where they're just like, we call bullshit. This is ridiculous. Stop this. Yeah. So Twitch continuing to fuck it up. And amidst all of the ultimate suck happening there, (laughs) Twitch's senior vice president of global creators, Constant Knight, is leaving the company. This means that Twitch has lost both its chief content officer and chief operating officer in addition to their senior VP of global creators, and neither of those C-suite jobs have been filled. Yeah. Those positions have not been filled as named officers. So that's three key positions now yeah. that are vacant. Mm-hmm. Well, that was a fun kickoff to the show. Yeah. Yeah. That was worth spending was, the half honestly, an hour on it, though. Honestly, it's because it's partially a labor story. It is. It is. Absolutely partially a labor story. Uh, but we have a few investment stories. We, we do a few investment stories. So, yeah. Mike, why don't you kick us off with what's going on in Saudi Arabia? Sure. Uh, Saudi Arabia's sport washing, sports washing continues. If you're not familiar with the concept of sports washing, it's essentially uh, trying to pretty up a nation's image by engaging in entertainment. Yeah. Uh, and trying to kind of gloss over uh, the bad things that are happening. And Saudi Arabia, of course, has a number of problems. <laughs> Um, That's putting it very. Yeah, very, I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lightly. soft pedal this like Dean Takahashi on Gamesbeat. Oh, jeez, um, really cool. Well, no, there. he wrote a really terrible piece, and he kind of soft pedaled the. Uh, it's like, oh, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia may have some challenges with human rights, but at least they're not sticking their head in the sand when it comes to video games. Which I'm gonna say is sticking your head in the sand. Like that seems like a little casual bigotry. Right there, like saying that about uh, a Middle Eastern nation. Don't love that. I don't. I don't, I don't love that. that. Uh, even if they do kill journalists, which uh, you know that's a problem. Um, so, so yes, there are huge amounts of hu- of human rights violations going on in Saudi Arabia. The uh, the royalty in Saudi Arabia ordered the murder of Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi, which um, we will never stop talking no, about. And, just to be clear, it's never going to stop. Yeah, which is which is part of why the the Dean's piece was so disgusting was because you see a lot of really good coverage of this Axios uh, game developer games industry where it's brought up literally every single time that savvy gaming in Saudi Arabia and um, ESL and Place It is that the other one that they own now? Yep. Um, Oh, face it. That's what it is. Face it. So uh, just to recap, Saudi Arabia has invested enormous amounts in EA, Take-Two, Activision, Nintendo. They recently invested a billion dollars in Embracer Group. And of course, uh, they have now uh, increased their uh, ownership of SNK to, uh, it's I think 90, it's in the high 90s. I don't know if it's 100%, but it's the high 90s. They they effectively control SNK at this point. Uh, Saudi Arabia has established a huge foothold in esports with the acquisition of ESL and Face It for $1.5 billion in January of this year. Now they're poised to spend another $37 billion. And that's split between an intention of investing $18 billion in minority investments and get this, $13 billion in acquiring and developing a leading game publisher. Now, given that Zynga sold for just under $13 billion, Saudi Arabia has its eyes on someone really, really big. 
I don't know who that would be. I think EA's bigger than that. Uh, Ubisoft is bigger than that, I believe. Correct. Um, so if we're so if we're looking at who might be worth thirteen billion dollars, let's do a little math here. So, uh, Saudi Arabia invests a billion dollars in Embracer Group. Oh. And that gave them eight point one percent of the company. Right. You factor that back to valuation, and that comes out to almost twelve point five billion dollars. Oh, that would be. And then you talk about organic growth, any other investments or acquisitions that have happened along the way, and you're getting in the ballpark of another thirteen billion dollars. That's. I I have to wonder if Saudi Arabia has its eye on a full acquisition of Embracer. That would suck. The only thing that doesn't get them is more esports because play on coffee stain. You mean Coke? Uh, Coke. Uh, Saber. Like, none of them really have an esports presence. No. So, I... Decent in content creation, don't get me wrong. Absolutely, but... Not, but... not so much in esports, because there's not a whole lot of competitive stuff in there. So, yeah. So, that would not be... That would be great. really terrible. That would be yeah. really terrible. And yeah. I am crossing my fingers that that's not the case, but also... There, if you're a publicly traded company, you have a fiduciary responsibility to entertain any offer. Yep, and we know table. that you can reject it based on you know like what like what Unity did, like they and then ended up rejecting mm-hmm. App Lovin's um, right stuff because they're like this is not in the best interest of the company, which is fine. You can do that, but that's a that's a big thing to walk away from. Absolutely. So, and you know that Embracer, like they they were on. They were in the line of fire when they took this investment and Lars Windhorst, who's the CEO, had to come out with a big statement about why they took it. I mean, obviously, at this point, if Lars has to if Lars takes another 13 billion dollars from Embracer Group, he just gets to dance off into the night with his money. I mean, I I assume that he will stay involved, but the dude will be rich. I mean, he's already rich, but he will be big rich. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what? You know what's just as important as money? What? culture yes corporate responsibility yeah all that stuff that stuff's really important and i don't think that we can put too fine of a point on that absolutely okay all right so uh what else at netflix yes let's talk about what's going on at netflix so we have a couple of different couple of different pieces going on for netflix netflix has announced they are they are creating a new internal studio which will be headquartered in helsinki finland Mm -hmm. With Marco Lastica, formerly of Zynga, as the studio director. Uh, Netflix now has four internal studios, including Next Games, Night School, and Boss Fight. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, they are signing three triple point, or sorry, tilting point games. Mm-hmm. The first two tilting point games, um, which will be coming to Netflix, will be SpongeBob Get Cooking, mm-hmm. which is going to be a cooking game, which could be hilarious. Gotta make them cra- Krabby Patties, yeah. Gotta make those Krabby Patties. And then they're also creating um, a game called Narcos Cartel Wars Unlimited. I which... think Cartel War that game is already existing. This is probably a version of it that meets the Netflix requirements. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, Tilting Point is also collaborating with Netflix and developer Emerald City Games to create a brand new third mobile game based on some popular Netflix series, which will be coming to the platform next year. Okay. So one of the things I did notice that Netflix is really, really, really pushing is that this is all ad and IAP free. 
Yeah. So that's what I meant by Narcos Cartel Wars Unlimited probably being an IAP. Like, it's similar to how games come to Apple Arcade. Yeah. If they've had in-app purchases prior Yeah, absolutely. To that, so. I mean, like, some of them, some of the games that are on Apple Arcade, they still have the remnants of in-app purchases, but it's not premium currency. It's just in-game yeah, currency. Yeah, it's the soft currency. So it's soft currency. just real quick, because you'll hear us talk about this a lot. Soft currency is stuff you can earn in-game. Hard currency is stuff is where you like buy gems for real money. Yeah, exactly. So as a reminder, Tilting Point is a very different kind of mobile publisher in that they tend to take successful mobile games and they help them skyrocket. Mm-hmm. That's That's been their MO since, I don't know, it's been years, years. and years and years. years. Like, I think 2018 was the first time I sat down with the folks at Tilting Point to get to to get to know their business model and to better understand what they do. But um, they do things like user acquisition, funding and management, app store optimization, ad monetization, um, platform deployment. They do web two to web three services, mm-hmm. which whatever. Um, and for existing partners, they deepen relationships through mergers and acquisition and co-development. The co-development stuff is what makes Tilting Point such an interesting publisher because many mobile publishers do not take on co-development, nor do they take on the burden of M&A. Right. So Tilting Point is really interesting. Mm -hmm. And successful. And successful. And they have a decent culture from what I understand. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. I'm interested to maybe play the SpongeBob game. I I hope it's like Point P because I played a lot of Point P. I know you did. (laughs) I know you love that point P. I love point P. That's true. August. August. <laughs> August. <laughs> All right. A uh, new report from Reuters indicating that Tencent is no longer content to just be a minority shareholder. Uh, sources tell the publication that the Chinese entertainment giant is planning to shift its strategy and focus on majority and acquisition investments in the gaming space. Ruh-roh. This is a big, big, big shift. Remember that it wouldn't be brand new for them. Uh, Tencent has full ownership of Riot, Funcom, Sumo Group, Turtle Rock, and others. They've got majority investments in Fat Shark, Mini Clip, Clay, Tequila Works, Jaeger, and more. And they also have minority investments in Ubisoft, Epic, Bloober Team, Remedy, Netmarble, From Software, Craft, and Paradox, and a number of other studios. Amanda, what is prompting this shift, do you think? Do I think? Or do you know? I mean, <laughs> what I can surmise based on what? How long have I been covering this? Years and four years. years? Yeah. Based on the last four years of, of analysis on the Chinese game market, it is dead on arrival out there. Yeah. It's Unless tough. you are a Chinese based developer, a China based developer, mainland China based developer, mind mm-hmm. you. We're not even talking about their there are other territories you have to be mainland in mainland China and you have to be making games that are very positive about China or teach you about Chinese history. Mm -hmm. The ministry of propaganda, which has since been renamed to something else, but it's way less interesting. So it's always going to be the ministry of propaganda for me. Mm -hmm. It is exceptionally difficult to secure game public, like to secure game licenses to even get your game approved by the government. And your game has to be approved by the Chinese government in order to be distributed. And it was Tencent and NetEase, right? Mm-hmm. Were the two big ones where they served as partners for Western games coming That's into right. China. And that was a- And they still do. They still broker those sure. deals and they are instrumental in ensuring that what the largest Western publishers have access to the Chinese market, which is enormous. It is an enormous market. Mm-hmm. 
and ignoring Chinese gamers would be folly. Absolutely. But but let's talk about this for a second because I think that if this was a long-term strategy, Tencent executed it to a, to a T. Like they really just nailed it. If this was uh, adapting to changing market uh, conditions, I think they are also executing to a T because what happened was they created partnerships with Western publishers and developers. A number of years ago. A number of years ago. Gave them access to the Chinese market. The Chinese market is now very unstable in terms of revenue because of the approvals that you that you just talked about. And it's not even just approvals about game distribution. It's also about children being able to play games. If you're under the age yep. of 18, your gaming time is rigorously monitored. By the government. By the government. Yep. And there are fines and even potentially jail time, I believe, for parents if parents don't rigorously enforce those limits. Mm-hmm. It is a not okay time to be a gamer or a game developer or a publisher or really a person in many places in mainland China. Yes. So what happened was... Well, actually just in China, period. Right. So what happened was you have these these giant companies who said, okay, well, we need more outside revenue. We need to diversify our revenue stream Mm -hmm. because we cannot count on the Chinese government being giving us the room that we need in order to grow as a media and entertainment corporation which is understandable and at the same time tencent is also making some really not great cultural decisions right just like with fanbite which they own uh laying people off which we talked about a couple of weeks ago last week two weeks ago i think it was it was last week and we were we were pretty angry and still am and yeah i i definitely am still feeling that anger so Look, if from the beginning they said, we'll give these companies in the West access to the Chinese market, we'll build up our cash reserves, and then we'll start making big investments to own or at least have you know more stable revenue streams from them, then again, an, an immense strategy that they have executed perfectly. If this is just, oh, things have gotten tough in China, we need to, we need to do more outside of the country, again, they're executing on it really well. There are a lot of developers and publishers that are not going to say no to that Tencent money. And because they're not striking up conversations for the first time with, hey, we want to buy a piece of you, they've already got solid relationships and bringing all these games over. It's a much easier conversation for them. Well, and it's not even just that. For the most part, even if Tencent is a full majority or minority investor, they tend to be very hands-off. Yes. They they just kind of let the companies do whatever they're going to do. For better or for worse. Yeah, and we have seen some some big cultural issues starting to surface there. Not that we're surprised. Um, but still. But still, yeah. All right, we got one more uh, investment story that just popped up this morning. All right, walk us through it. All right, uh, Fandom has acquired a number of properties from Red Ventures, including GameSpot, Giant Bomb, Metacritic, GameFAQs, TV Guide, Comic Vine, and Cord Cutters, which is their answer to like wire, the wire cutter. Okay. Uh, they did not acquire CNET. So Red Venture still has CNET. And we know that they have not been great to a number of these sites. There have been layoffs. CNET went through a period of laying off some great people. Uh, but this does make fandom the number 14 ad-supported site in the United States. The combined reach of those of the sites that it acquired is 46 million on top of fandom's 300 million MAUs and 250,000 wiki communities. Fandom also purchased Screen Junkies in 2018 and Curse in 2019, which in then turned into a hugely lucrative uh, relationship for them with Wizards of the Coast. Curse was responsible for D&D Beyond. That was then sold back to Wizards of the Coast in April for $146 million. Uh, 
fandom is, is really successful. I actually, there were some conversations online this morning. People don't love their wikis. They've also been accused of inflating Twitch viewership by running ads and running. Yeah, it's not good. I hate that, so but abusing, it's also it's also an important thing to talk about. Yes. Uh, so abusing the API is, is not great uh, at all. Uh, and I'm not sure why Twitch allows that because it, it, it oh, messes. Oh, we've seen it. We've seen it everywhere. Yeah, like, we have. this is, again, you want to talk about some of the worst kept secrets in streaming. That's one of them. Yep, absolutely. Uh, no financial terms were disclosed. So that is everything for Investment Interlude on uh, on this Monday morning. Whew. We still have a lot more to go. We do. But you know what we should do first? What? Take a break. Yes, we should. Virtual Economy is an F-squared initiative, and along with pro bono business consulting for up-and-coming developers, it's a way we are working to give back to the community that has already given us so much. To find out more about F-squared and the services we can provide, including pitch prep, media training, mock reviews, and business strategy guidance, visit our website at fsquared.biz. And we are back. Hey, Mike. Yes. What time is it? It's time for Quick Hits. Oh, it's so beautiful. Oh, thanks. So beautiful. Was that fair? All right. First up, we have a Microsoft story. Yeah, this is an interesting one. This is a very interesting. Actually, one. I really love this story. We Me talked too. about this on the in the car on the way home from seeing our eldest this yeah. weekend. It was really nice. So this is this is a feel good story because it feels like there are no feel good stories today, which kind of makes me sad. Oh. Um. Let's talk about what Microsoft doing what Microsoft is doing rather with Project Amplify. So they have they recently launched Project Amplify, which is designed to support youth in the black community who are interested in gaming. Mm-hmm. Currently, only 2% of people in the video game industry are black, which is significantly under the 13% of the total U.S. population the industry represents. Yeah. So if there was equal pull from, you know, yep. there would be 13% of the, of the industry in the U.S. Would, would be made up of black people. That's not, not the case. That's not the case. It's 2%. That's significantly under under where the uh where under the representation for the industry in the state. Absolutely. In the States. Yeah. So the project includes 14 black employees from different areas on the Xbox team including and this is the part that I love, including people from business development, product management, engineering, game design, licensing, strategy, art, publishing and more. In each video, a member of the team talks about their journey into the gaming industry and what they do on their team. So I watched a couple of these. I really love the interview with Kim Williams Osborne. She's the director of licensing for Forza Studio Turn 10. Five minute video. She talks about how she started at Microsoft, how she moved into her current job. But what I absolutely loved was she gives this very top level explanation of how negotiation works because she's responsible for negotiating uh, the inclusions of cars and telling uh, the dev team, like working with the dev team, it's like, no, you can't use this color. That car doesn't come in this color. No, you can't use this car. We can try. But when she's sitting down and she talks about this, and this is like when I took negotiation class in grad school, this is the thing. You go in with your your things that you will not budge on. These are the things you absolutely need from a from a negotiation. When you have a contract, these are the things that need to be in it. But you go in with more than that. You go in with the things that you want and you expect that you're going to have to give some of them up. Mm-hmm. And where you and that's what ends up happening. She says, like, I go in with three of I go in with 10 things, three of them I absolutely need. The other seven I'm willing to budge on. I'm willing to give up so that I can get the things I really want. Yeah. And it's great. Like, it wasn't just a here's who I am. Here's where I've been. But it's here's what I do. 
And it was really, really and cool. And here's how I do what I yeah. do. Here's a little piece of how I do what I do. And honestly, taking that information and distilling it into using negotiation tactics for literally anything in your life, including mm -hmm. salary negotiations, including like if you're in college, negotiations with your damn roommate. Yeah. You know, huh. like things like that, the things that you don't really think about when you're really young that become very important very quickly. Absolutely. So this video series, it's live now on the ID at Xbox YouTube channel. It's another potent reminder that representation matters, not just in the entertainment we consume, but understanding who is responsible for bringing us that entertainment. And I think it's great if young black people who are interested in joining the gaming community see all of these different things that they might be able to do. They'll find something that they're interested in that matches their strengths. They'll see people that look like them doing those jobs and they'll feel empowered to 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 try, to, and to, to apply and to feel like they belong, which is important. So I love, love, love this. And it's coming from a major platform, a major platform mm -hmm. that's doing this. And I think that that's the power of it because there are lots of incredible nonprofits and and really great, um, diversely represented, incredible organizations out there. They're doing this work, but on a smaller scale because Microsoft and Xbox are enormous. Absolutely. So this is a boon. And I am so thrilled that they are continuing to walk the talk that they have been talking about since 2018 when I had some of my first conversations with Microsoft about the importance of DEI and not having DEI as a program, but as a practice. Absolutely. All right, we got one more quick hit. Uh, Limited Run has announced a new book imprint called Press Run. The label is headed up by Jeremy Parrish and Jared Petty with the Woo! plan to publish, quote, new high quality books on video games and game adjacent topics. We have a number of Jeremy's books uh, on on the history of gaming. Honestly, uh, they're fantastic. Jeremy and Jared are such wonderful humans. I am such fans of both of them as people. Mm -hmm. And Jeremy is an incredible writer and Jared is an incredible writer. Yep. So this is really great. I'm so excited to see what's going to be coming out of this label. Yep. So the first titles under the imprint are Jeremy's NES Works 1987 and Virtual Boy Works, a book called Limited Run, The Complete Run, Volume 1, 2015 to 2016, which documents the company's history, PlayStation, a retrospective and the history of Sunsoft volume one by Sunsoft. Stefan Ganser. I actually think that's Sunsoft. great. Yeah. If you remember the, uh, the Batman game on NES, that was Sunsoft. Sunsoft. Yeah. That is a name I have not heard in many years. And apparently they're coming back. I had heard there was the, there was the spoof that they were coming back, but I think they're actually trying to come back now. That's incredible. Yeah. We, we love to see obscure gaming history. And I mean, like, look, Limited Run is also, if you want to hear from the folks at Limited Run, we, we've we done a couple of interviews with them. Yep. Josh Fairhurst was on an early episode and you recently interviewed them about the Carbon Engine. I did. And we had a really in-depth conversation about video game preservation and about the game industry's responsibilities when it comes to video game preservation. Mm -hmm. And if you know me and you've listened to this show before, you know, you know that video game preservation is actually a piece of the work that I do because I am on the board at Hit Save. Yes. Absolutely. And we're actually we're we're celebrating 2 years. That's wonderful. Congratulations. Month. It's our it's our happy birthday in like 11 days. Wow. I'm Very really cool. yeah, I'm really excited about it. Anyway, so yes. And that's Great everything. job at Limited Run. Yeah. So what does that mean? And those were quick hits. That, that's what it means. That's what it means. It, that's what it that's means. That's what it means. All right. We got some interesting labor stuff today. We, 
You know, we really do cover a lot of Activision Blizzard in our labor report. Sometimes it feels like they're the main character in the labor report. They which are. Which is bad for them. They are the villain of the labor report often. Yeah. But this is, uh, this is a really interesting story. So uh, this popped up last week. Polygon covered it. Uh, Amber Lamachia, who is an Activision Blizzard QA worker, traveled to the Department of Labor's Workers' Voice Summit to speak up about crunch culture. Oh my goodness. Yes. Uh, she also spoke with Polygon. She mentioned how OSHA doesn't have a significant presence in the game industry. You have to explain what OSHA is for people outside of the United States. Okay. So are you familiar with uh, the Death Star? I am in fact familiar with the Death Star. You know how there's no railings on those walkways? Yeah, that always struck me as kind of irresponsible and dangerous. Well, if there was a space OSHA, there would be railings on those walkways. So OSHA is the department, it's the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. So they are responsible for setting workplace practices that protect workers. Okay. So they are the, they are the organization that says, hey, if you have these, these chemicals... In your facility, you need to have an eyewash station or you need to have X eyewash stations every, you know, you know, for this space. Okay. You need to have these safety protocols in place. This signage needs to be up to warn people. You have to wear hard hats, like all of that. So that's all OSHA. Okay. All right. So in an interview with Polygon, Lamachia mentioned that OSHA just does not have a presence right. here in the game industry. Right. Um, so I, I think it's really interesting that there is a goal here of saying, hey, OSHA, this is a big issue. This is a worker safety issue and uh, you should pay attention to it. Now, I shared this poly the Polygon story on Twitter. One of my followers, uh, J. O'Malley1986, who has followed me for a number of years, uh, was kind enough to ch share some expertise. He works in an industry that's heavily regulated by OSHA and pointed me to the guidelines that specifically state, quote, no OSHA standard to regulate extended and unusual shifts in the workplace exists. So that's not OSHA's purview. However, that's covered under the Fair Labor Standards Act. Uh, Jomali suggested that uh, the first step would be likely to get crunch recognized as a health and safety hazard. Oh. So if it were to get recognized as a health and safety hazard, then it would be regulating crunch, not so much as regulating uh, extended or unusual shifts. Huh. So it's an, it's an uphill battle. This whole oh, thing is yeah. going to be an uphill battle. Uh, so that was really interesting. I think it's a very novel approach to try to get the culture issues in the industry taken care of specifically. I think it's great. Yeah. Like we should be talking about this and I'm so glad that there are people that are willing to go stand up for quite frankly, this industry. Absolutely. And I think novel approaches to this sort of thing and exploring these different avenues is absolutely important to this kind of change. Figuring mm -hmm. out where this fits in, who's going to care about it, who's going to help regulate it, who's going to help protect workers. Because we, we've we seen it time and time again. It's either we, the, the game industry regulates itself, which it hasn't done. Correct. The ESRB is like the one thing that the game industry did right. Right. And that was, and let's be clear, the ESRB was a reaction to potentially being regulated. Correct. And if you want more about that, you know how earlier in the show, Mike was saying that I have like all of these credentials and I was just finished my first book. It's being published soon. I talk about the creation of the ESRB because it is one of the most foundational elements to understanding video games as parents. Yes. So I actually talk about the founding of the ESRB and the ESA. That's great. Quite a bit. Great. You know what I want to talk about more oh, than that, though? Oh, oh my God. This is just, Hit me, like, baby, so, one more time. Oh, it's so beautiful. And uh, waterboard me, baby, one more time. Oh, no. Uh, maybe hit me with a sack of oranges one more time. I don't know. I don't know how they do things Enhanced there. podcasting. Enhanced podcasting. 
Um, one other Activision note, torture apologist Fran Townsend is out as Activision's chief compliance officer. However, she'll still be whispering in Bobby Kotick's ear as an advisor to the board and to Kotick himself. And quite frankly, we just would like her to leave already. See, I just picture Grima Wormtongue whispering in Grima Wormtongue's ear. Oh, no. <laughs> and there's no Theoden King. There's no. There's just like two assholes whispering to each other. Wait, 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 wait. No, <laughs> two no. Two whispering assholes. No, no. But wait, what if, and I this this is giving him way too much credit, but what if he's actually Saruman? No, they're just both assholes. No, it's I mean, fair. It's fair. It's Bobby fair. Kotick is the opposite of Christopher Lee. Christopher Lee was metal. Bobby Kotick no, is... No, no, we're talking is, about Saruman, the character, who was a coward and turned against his own people in order to save his ass and gain power. We're not talking about, not talking about Christopher Lee. Okay, who but that assumes that badass. Bobby Kotick was ever... See, that's the thing. One of, one of these, one of the yeah, people. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's the part. That's the part. So yeah, it's probably just Grima on Grima action. <laughs> yeah, Grima on Grima action. I don't I regret am anything. Gonna have nightmares. I I don't this. regret anything about what I just said. I'm gonna vom. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what's next? Okay, um, Apex Legends and Jedi Fallen Order developer Respawn has taken a public stance against harassment of its developers. In a statement on Twitter, the company shared the following. Shared the following. Recently, we have seen increased harassment towards members of our development team. We welcome community input. However, the line between constructive feedback and the harassment of our development team cannot be crossed. We want to remind our players that we have a zero tolerance policy for threats and the harassment of our developers. We will take appropriate action to ensure the safety and health of our team. We love hearing feedback and will continue to work alongside our community to foster a respectful, collaborative environment and uphold the competitive integrity of our game. It sucks that this was this necessary. This is specifically about Apex. This is specifically about Apex. It, it sucks that this was necessary, but you've got Bungie speaking up. You've got Respawn speaking up now. Like... Stop start, harassing developers. More like, importantly, just start like this is this has gone on for too long. Like we should have been firing toxic consumers all along. Ban, 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 ban. It's like you hire slow and you fire fast, mm -hmm. right? Like yeah. when it comes to community development, and listen, neither Mike nor I are experts on community development. But we've paid attention for long enough and have enough friends that do community development and community management to understand that when you bring people in, you bring them in slowly. You bring mm -hmm. your key community members in slowly, and then you build your community slowly, yep. organically, through over time. And you build policies to ensure that you fire them fast. Yeah. There's another story that we that I didn't dig into too much here and I didn't include in the show notes where uh the phasmophobia developers were in the line of fire because apparently one of their admins was a sex pest. Oh. And they didn't they moved extremely slowly to remove No, that no, 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 you fire fast. Fire yeah. fast. And this isn't even a paid this wasn't even a paid person. I think this is just an admin in their Discord server. It doesn't matter. Who was fire fast. soliciting uh, uh pictures that, you know. Ew. Yeah. Ew indeed. Ew. But so, yes, but since you mentioned the the fire fast thing. Fire fast. Their, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if they're paid. It doesn't matter if they're community members. Fire them fast. Yeah. Uh, some weird news. This was, what, yesterday? 
Yeah. Did this happen yesterday? Some strange I, I don't know. News. It was over the weekend. Yeah, out of uh, Disco Elysium developer studio Zaum. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not going to spend too much time on this because there's a lot we don't know yet, and we're not going to make any... We're not going to jump to any conclusions. No, it's it's not... It's not appropriate. To. No, there's there's a lot. There's probably a lot that's going to come out and others will report on that. And we will, of course, share it. Certainly. It's not our job. It's it, yeah, it's not. Sadly, no one is paying us to do investigative journalism. Because that, this like would this. this would perk our ears up and we would we would go digging in a compassionate capacity. Absolutely. But uh, the amount of time it would take to for us to report on this, like to do original reporting on this story would be enormous. Uh, so here's what we do know. Martin Luiga, who uh, was a founding member member of the Zaum Cultural Association. So this is a group that predated the company as a formal structure. Right. It was the group that came together to found the company, to found the, to found the ideals of the company and, and everything. Uh, it says that the Cultural Association is now dissolved. Uh, states that, you know, that the that the ethics of the company and the 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 principles of the of the of the cultural association just they're no longer being honored anymore. Uh, but Luiga stated that three key members of the team, I, I guess in addition to himself, have been involuntarily removed from the company. And those include Robert Kurvitz, who is the lead writer on Disco Elysium, Helen Hindpier, who was writer on the, who was a writer on the original game and lead writer on the Final Cut expansion, and Alexander Rostov, who was responsible for the game's art direction, which is extremely iconic. It's, um, it's emblematic. And yes. like the game is not the game without all of these people absolutely uh there is a sequel or another game in development who knows what's going to happen without some of these key voices uh luiga signed the letter with a location uh a mental health facility in Tallinn, estonia and that's where the studio is located so uh obviously this was posted on medium he chose to put it in there it's not like somebody put it there for him so so that's interesting there's clearly a lot more to this story Again, we're not going to speculate, but something is going on at Studio Zaum. It doesn't sound great, uh, but we are going to wait for more information before we... We're not going to speculate. I just I Mo- don't want to speculate. Most this. importantly, we wish all the health and happiness yes. to, to the team that is there at Zaum and to the team members that have left and to uh, Luiga himself. Yes, absolutely. So I, whatever it ends up being, whatever it comes out as, whatever we hear in terms of reporting, these are still people Mm -hmm. and people are deserving of compassion until, you know, otherwise informed. Yes. Okay. Well, that was crappy. Yes. So let's, uh, in more in further crappy news. Yeah, we have one one more labor story. One more labor story. So Axios has an exclusive interview with former Nintendo tester Mackenzie Clifton, who filed a labor complaint against the House of Mario. In the interview, which is linked in our show notes, of course, Clifton details what happens what happened rather starting with a fair question to nintendo of america president doug bowser Mm -hmm. in a conversation between bowser and testers they asked what nintendo of america thinks about the unionization trend going on in the industry the question wasn't answered or acknowledged but clifton's direct employer staffing firm aston carter came down on them for asking a quote downer question and suggested that any inquiry like that should be made to them and not nintendo As a result, Clifton was fired a month later. Nintendo accused Clifton of publicly disclosing, quote, confidential information. And that was the reason for the termination. That was the reason. Yeah. 
And when pressed, Aston Carter told them that a tweet which stated, quote, in today's build, someone somewhere must have deleted every other texture in the game because everything is now red. Just like pure red. It's very silly. And apparently that was the offense. See, that's disambiguated. Um, yeah, they're, they're, they were they were working on a game. There's no identifying information there. None. Literally nothing. Zero. That could literally be any game. Any game. Any game whatsoever. This is this is this is a stretch. Testers, people that work in quality assurance are probably among the most maligned in the game industry and in tech in general. Quality assurance is one of the most integral disciplines when it comes to releasing software that is usable, that is effective, and that accurately and adequately communicates the vision of whatever piece of software whether that's a video game or SaaS or whatever, mm -hmm. QA is so important. And once again, we will point you back to our conversation with Carrie Toyama from yes. 2020, yep. I want to say, where we had a conversation about how private division handles quality mm -hmm. assurance and the importance of building quality assurance with compassion in mind absolutely so testers put in thousands of hours of work on games and nintendo refused to credit clifton and the other testers uh however apparently clifton at the very least was ev eventually credited i assume it was it was very hard to tell because of pronoun usage in the axios piece if i, I assume that all credit all testers were eventually credited i hope so uh, i think it was in an update uh so the nlrb complaint is currently still being handled settlement talks have taken place uh, though there's not yet a meeting of the minds, Clifton said, I want a written apology from Doug Bowser. Yeah. And Nintendo came back and said, well, you can have a conversation with HR and a neutral letter of recommendation. This is this is not the same picture. No, these are not the same picture. So these it'll be very interesting same. to see what happens here. But the fact that these settlement talks are taking place indicates that Nintendo realizes that uh, this was not handled properly. No. There, there's a there there, as we would say. Yeah. Um, all right, so that is everything on the labor report. We have one more main story and then a FAFO that has been literal years in the making. Oh, man. Uh, E3 is wising from its wave. Much like we talked about in at the top of the show, just I, a little bit. I really hope I don't have to explain the wise from your wave thing. Like, you have to be a gamer of a certain age, I guess, but... Yeah, well, Mike and I are old, yes. so... Uh, so look, E3 is now going to be managed by event company Reed Pop. Yep. Uh, which also handles PAX, New York Comic Con, and more. Uh, the new E3 is going to be modeled after Gamescom and is going to feature supported third-party digital events beginning on Sunday, June 11th, which is just a little bit later than... it had. Remember, E3 had started creeping yep. earlier. It was, like, it was like the Friday. <laughs> but wait, it still might. Uh, so the, the showcases that, were, that have been mentioned, because uh, I got a sneak peek at the pitch deck mm -hmm. for this... Uh, PC Gaming Show, Future Game Show, Gorilla Collective, uh, and a couple of others. Not mentioned uh, any of the third part, any of the first parties, rather. So Nintendo, Microsoft, Sony, which is probably going to be a no-show anyway at E3. Yeah. Uh, Sony's but been no, a no-show at E3 for a number of years. Right, but no AAA publisher events like Square Enix and Ubisoft and EA, which have all done big conferences in the past. Right. I think I I think that even with Reed Pop aboard, I think they're going to have a very tough time luring some of these AAA companies back. 
I would tend to agree. I think the only one that they probably entirely would have in the bag is Microsoft. Right. The Microsoft theater's right there. Yeah, and Microsoft will do its own thing. I, I don't know if Microsoft... Microsoft will not do business space. And that's the thing. So let's talk about this real quick. Uh, so digital events will start on Sunday, June 11th. Yes. And go for two days. Yes. Tuesday, June 13th, business days will start. Mm -hmm. And those are going to have their own space. So if you've never been to Gamescom, halls four and five, I believe, are the two that are the business space. You need a business badge to get in. They're, they're relatively quiet. You do not have throngs of people. They're busy, but they are, you can move around and you can find places to sit down and all that fun stuff. Right. Uh, so business days will start on Tuesday, June 13th. They will have their own space. So the second floor of the LACC, which has already been business space. That's been business space the entire time. Yeah, that's, there's, there's meeting rooms and private uh, exhibition rooms and stuff. Yeah. South Hall oh. will be entirely business. Wow. Uh, and Kentia Hall, apparently. They're <gasps> the looking return. Be, yes. It returns. So those will run through Thursday, June 15th. Reed Pop says it'll be using a meeting system. GDC has a meeting system. Uh... And then consumer spaces, which is West Hall and the off-floor meeting rooms between halls. Oh. The ones that are, like, right. lower. Right, right, right. Uh, where some of the smaller publishers typically have their spaces. They're, they're smaller rooms. They're, tempor they're temporary temporary walls and stuff like that. Uh, but they're, they're, good, they're good spaces. They are. So those will be open... Uh, but if they just do booths in there, I guess it'll it'll work. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think so. so it's, it's big enough. So that'll be Thursday the 15th and Friday the 16th. So some interesting things that kind of pop up from this format. Um, smaller teams are going to have to decide between the being in the business space or being in the consumer space. I think it really depends on how they handle the business space. Like if the business space is less about the splash mm -hmm. and more about the impact, yeah. then it shouldn't be nearly... As gnarly? The conversation is, do I want press to write about my game or do I want Or do I want the buzz? consumer reaction? Like, yeah, that's kind of the big thing. Um, from our perspective, Read Pop and their PR company are trustworthy with data. We have been to, we, we know the PR team. We trust the PR team. We've been to PAX. We will eventually go back to PAX. Maybe even next year. Yes, hopefully. Um, but also pricing is still extremely high. The booths alone are likely to run about $12,000 to $100,000, depending on size. Larger publishers are going to need to double their costs to be in oh, both yeah. spaces. Um, but booth costs are only the beginning. Union labor is required. There's food. There's drink. There's there's a lot of it. There's Wi-Fi and TVs and all of the stuff that you need to run a booth. So exhibitors there's typically... Booth infrastructure. And, and we talked about this a couple of years ago when we got our hands on the E320. The, the, the way that... E3 wanted to run the 2020. Right. Show and I, I, I honestly, that. I like this. I like this version of E3. Yeah, I, I like this version of E3 too. I think that there are some drawbacks from a, from a exhibitor perspective. I, think, I agree. I think costs are going to be a lot higher. And remember, exhibitors typically spend hundreds of thousands, if not a million dollars or more just to be at E3 and, and on site at E3. And remember back before we had PAX as the mainstay mm -hmm. in in the US and in Australia, it, it was just like, what did we have? We had E3. Yep. Because GDC is not an accessible event for anyone who isn't a game developer or a member of the press. Like, it's just yes. not a thing. And E3 was like this shining thing, right? This bombastic, over-the-top, exclusive event that only people that worked really hard could get into or paid a lot of money could mm -hmm. get into. 
Now, I love making gaming events accessible. I think that it's really, really important to make it accessible for content creators, for influencers, for um, for the for the general public. And I hope that part of making this accessible is ensuring that, you know, folks can, even if they're not on site, they'll be able to cover the the event relatively well because, you know, we're still in the midst of a pandemic here. Folks. Yes. Yeah, we are. And I just got boosted today. So I'm going to be, we're recording this now so that, you know, I have time to die later today. And possibly into tomorrow. But yes. it is important to to recognize that accessibility and covering these events during the pandemic has been a lot better for folks that just either don't have the means to get to places like Los Angeles, which is very expensive, mm-hmm. or they just cannot get there physically because they have a number of disabilities. And that's really important to consider. Yes, absolutely. All right. So that is the last of the story. Oh, oh, wait, one more. No, we got one more. Oh, what? what's this, Amanda? Oh, man. It's this week's Fuck Around and Find Out Award. You have been so hungry for this. Oh, I've just been, oh my gosh, the schadenfreude that I feel. Schadenfreude. Seriously, I'm, it's a, it's a thing. It's a thing. You should ask me about it at some time when you see me in person. I'll tell you all about schadenfreude and my, uh, and my family. Mm. (laughs) Not my, not my chosen family, not the family that I made, but like the family I came from. Mm. (laughs) My dad would be all too happy to tell you all about schadenfreude. Um, But let's talk about this week's Fuck Around and Find Out Award. Each week, well, maybe not each week, but for the last couple of weeks, I guess, um, we'll pick the person or company in the game industry that has tended their garden from small seeds of fucking around to a sequoia-sized tree of finding out. And this week, oh, Three and a half years in the making. Three and a half years in the making, we finally can give Phil Harrison a Fuck Around and Find Out Award. Look, I think I've talked about my, my... terrible no good interview with phil <laughs> yeah, harrison no love here for phil harrison no, zero we've talked about phil harrison being the cooler in the game industry and um oh gosh rod ferguson being the closer, closer yeah. <laughs> you got the cooler who can do nothing right and you got the closer who makes magic happen yes and quite frankly i'd rather be rod ferguson yes so late last week Harrison's name was attached to a blog post announcing that Stadia has been pulled off life support. Now, before we get into this story, I want to remind everyone that there are still human costs associated with sunsetting a service. And I'm not talking about on the Google side because we'll get there. Yep. The service is going to be winding down with a shutdown plan for January 18th, 2023. That is not very far in the future. No. Three months. Three months. That's it. No additional purchases can be made, and everyone who purchased hardware, software, and add-ons will be refunded in full. Subscription services, however, for Stadia Pro will not be refunded. Okay, so let's talk about why Google is doing this real quick. It's not altruism, folks. They are looking to avoid any litigation. So you refund everybody, there's no reason for anybody to sue. Yeah, because what is happening here is the it is the most predictable Google decision that could have been predicted. Absolutely. There was no there was no way they were going to make this work with the business model. No way they were going to make it work. And it isn't just about, you know, oh, you know, but we don't we don't want our people to lease 
games, you know, and you know they won't really own them, but on Stadia they'll own them. And yeah, well. look, the Stadia tech is solid. It is. It is really, really good technology. And if they had just marketed it right from the gate as a white box solution for developers, oh man, can you imagine? That would have been great. The, it would have just but, been beautiful, like Shadow, right? Right, exactly. Or uh, Parsec. Or Parsec, yeah. These are all these are all both solutions that exist for two different kinds of audiences mm -hmm. and Stadia could like Google could have gotten in with that and it would have been amazing. Right. But it wasn't. But it wasn't. So let's talk about let's let's walk through the timeline real quickly just to refresh everybody on kind of how this all fell apart from the beginning. Uh, so first party studios when they so they made their first announcement at GDC in 2019 Amanda and I and uh, our friend Lilith were sitting in the press room. We were, yeah. Uh, watching this presentation and we're sitting there going, nope, 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 this doesn't make sense. And at that time, they announced Jade Raymond as leading first party initiative, the first party software initiative. Exactly. And we're like, oh, okay. Shouldn't you have done, spun this up a year ago? Yeah. Why did you guys not do this a year ago? Oh, like we've had these first party studios and everything's had to be under wraps. We got our first games on. So they're yeah. going to be Stadia exclusives coming out later this year. Yeah. Or next year or something. Yep. Uh, but instead, they, they announced in 2019 that they were just starting their first party initiatives. Now, if you are starting a new platform and you don't have a first party, you don't have first party uh, game development. DOA. Going on, yeah. Uh, also, they announced that they that they their business model was built around selling games versus a subscription like Game Pass. So they were asking people to purchase games that they would never have true ownership of and that if the system and if the service ever shut down, they would no longer have access to, which is exactly what is happening now. But on top of that, most of the games were full price games that you could get elsewhere for a year. It reminded me of the Wii U presentation oh, yeah. where they're like, you can play Batman Arkham City. It's like, I've been playing Batman Arkham City. I don't need to play it on Wii U. Yeah. And I mean, Wii U had some cool tech too, but sure. it, it suffered from the same problems is who is this for? Absolutely. Uh, and then it was dis it was discovered, I think this was a Bloomberg report that indicated they were spending millions of dollars per game to have developers and publishers port their titles to Stadia. They were throwing money at people. Which isn't, listen, we are, we are worker first here. Oh, yeah. Get your bag. Get if your bag. If you got your Stadia bag, we are so happy for yeah, you. That no, is amazing. And you should have. Like, you should have. However, now we're running into a problem, which we'll talk about in a second. But there have there were signs along the way that were very easy for anybody to read that this was not a viable business model. No. What else happened? First party operations actually shuttered in February of 2021. So two years, not a single game came out of it. Nope. Because it... Didn't have time to spin up. Exactly. They, they had they had made the decision again. Very Google, right? Oh, this isn't. It's not even. It's not even that. How to tell me that you don't understand video game development without telling me you don't mm -hmm. understand video game development? Did anyone go to Alchemy and like talk to them to consult on anything? Remember, of this? Alchemy is is owned by Google it's, it's and continues to survive owned. because they've they've carved out something very smart for themselves. Like wow. that was really handled well. And just and I mean, just a lovely team. Let's be real. But they could have consulted on this and been like. Y'all, video games are not going to be turned around for a new platform in a couple years. There is a learning curve. It's why we don't see a ton of, like, a ton of um, titles that come out during the launch window other than first party. It's true. Right? Because your third party developers are going to need a minute to get their dev kits. Yep. And then they signed some really smart deals with third party developer, like with Supermassive. Oh, sure. Who made the, the quarry. quarry and then said, hey, 
we're not going to release your game. And they freed them up and gave them back the IP. And now thankfully Supermassive is great. And they were able to, to take oh, their... Oh, I just adore Supermassive's games. Yep. So just they took the quarry them. over to uh, Take-Two, which is why it's like, huh, they announced this game. It's coming out very soon. What the hell's going on here? Well, it's because the game was, was, was effectively done, done. And it was an easy enough thing to market because Supermassive's got a pretty solid track record. Obviously, Until Dawn was really good. Uh, Honestly, the, Until the Dark Dawn Pictures remains games. one of my very favorite campy horror Mm-hmm um games and you know what when when our daughter when she was 13 we played it together yeah the dark pictures games have largely been good uh they haven't they've not been perfect i think you and i didn't love uh little hope no little hope had a lot of promise we liked man of madan which apparently just got another chapter and some additional like yeah the reason to go back to man of madan and then you and i played house of ashes which um which was very interesting although has some real not so great cultural stuff going on i found oh, it was out. american jingoism uh not just that it was the way the cultures were represented so they apparently got egyptians to play iraqis and oh yeah, there was this, oh, this no. thread that I just saw like last week where it's like, oh, oh no, somebody didn't hire the right cultural consultant. Look, I am, I'm, I'm a white guy. I didn't catch that, but yeah, the, this was a cultural miss oh. on that. So they have another one coming out. The devil and me is due out, I guess this month because it's spooky month. Yeah. It's spooky month. It's spooky month. I got to play the quarry. That's, that's high on my list. Okay. So anyway, they ended up releasing super massive from exclusivity. Take two got involved game published game has been met with relatively positive yeah. critical review there was there was another there were uh, other games that were also in the same situation where they were supposed to come out on stadia and got released mm-hmm. uh released you know from their exclusivity deals so and then asserting for certain at the end of july of 2022 so that would be you know earlier this year not even that long ago earlier this year not that long ago we're talking like four months three months ago three months ago yeah stadia is not shutting down Rest assured, we're always working on bringing more great games to the platform and to Stadia Pro. Let us know if you have other questions. And I think this was around the time where we started seeing games like The Quarry that, and then finding out it's like, oh, this was supposed to come out on Stadia. Seriously, Stadia is doomed. And they're like, no, 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 everything's fine. Everything's fine. Now, granted, the community, the community manager, of course, had no idea. And in of fact, course. nobody had any idea that any of this was happening. No, no. This is... Yeah. So just like we talked about, this is not a problem because of the technology. The technology is solid. Stadia will no doubt live on as licensed tech that others can use as a white box solution. But how is this a FAFO award, Mike? Oh, boy. So the real story here is how Harrison and the rest of the decision makers at Google and the Stadia brand have screwed over developers. Remember how I said that this was not going to be a great, like, yeah, you got your bag from Stadia story entirely? Yeah. This is why. A number of developers were blindsided by the news as they had games due to come out in days, weeks, and even a month from now. Even Bungie got blindsided Yeah, so when it comes uh, to Destiny 2. Absolutely. So these include SFB Games, which was due to release Tangle Tower last week. No More Robots, which has a game due for release in November on Stadia. Stadia, Necrosoft, which was planning to launch Hyper Gun Sport on Stadia in November. And as Manda said, even studios as large as Bungie and, you know, publisher Ubisoft were, were caught off guard. Um, Ubisoft says it is trying to move Stadia players to PC, but of course that assumes that those players have a PC capable of running intensive games. Y'all need games. to move to Shadow. Move to Shadow. Yeah. 
figure something out there. Uh, IO Interactive is also hoping to take care of Hitman players and help them port their progress over uh, to another platform. Um, smaller developers don't have the infrastructure to help port saves, uh, even if they can offer PC copies. And for those developers who were not just planning on releasing a game and you know had a contract with Stadia to get paid for the porting, there's revenue assumptions that were tied to this. Uh-huh. So... I really hope, I really hope that Google does right by these developers and pays them what they were supposed to have made. And yes, exactly. Not just pay them out their contracts for the porting as if those projects were completed, but also pay them out a revenue expectation. You know what? It's Google. They can afford it. They can totally afford it. This is, this is shitty. And the fact that Harrison, that people found out about this through, through Twitter is through the horrifying. blog post. This is not how you take care of partners. And quite frankly, no one should work with Google. This industry Ever needs again. to walk away from Google. Yeah, quite entirely. frankly. Oh, so yeah, Phil Harrison, well-deserved FAFO award. We'll send you your plaque. Yeah, I promise you, you'll hate it. But it's funny, E3 vacated a grave and Stadia climbed right in. Oh boy. Oh boy. But you know what? We did it. We got through it because yep. this is the very end of this podcast episode. And Stadia. Oh, my friend sorry. <laughs> it's the end of stadia as we know it and we feel fine <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for listening to the virtual economy podcast you can follow us on twitter at at virtual econcast i'm amanda farrow on twitter and i am at footerish f-u-t-t-e-r-i-s-h you can subscribe to our rss feed at virtualeconcast.com. you can also listen to us on spotify iHeartRadio, apple Podcasts, google play amazon stitcher pocket cast there's always this one that i yeah ah pocket sand right in the face right in the face. uh please subscribe and if possible review the show let us know what you think if you have questions and let me tell you we love questions. We love listener questions. Listener questions are legitimately one of my favorite things to receive because it means that we get to help you all better understand what the heck is going on in this absolutely turbulent industry. Yeah. So send them to us. You can DM you can DM us. You can't DM me because my DMs are closed unless, you know, I say otherwise. Yes. Um, but you can DM virtual econcast, you can DM Mike yes. at Twitterish, you can send us emails, podcast at fsquared.biz, you can ask us on Discord. A lot of the time if you ask us on Discord, we'll both answer you in Discord and then elaborate on it in the show. Mm -hmm. And speaking of Discord, if you'd like to be a part of our community, which is small and cozy and lovely, all you gotta do is reach out and say, hey, how do I get in this Discord? And then I will send you an invite. So, and that's yeah. it. That's it for this week. Yes, we will be back next week. We are going to be at New York Comic Con events, not at the con itself, but we'll be at a couple of events later this week. If uh, you see us, come say hi. If you come see us, yeah, come uh, come say hi. We're gonna see some friends, see some of see some stuff, uh, and then next weekend uh, we're gonna be just putting together some Warhammer stuff because we are eager to get our our armies to the table. It's very true. It's it going to be it's going to be a Warhammer weekend it next weekend, which weekend. is like the first restful weekend I think we'll have had in a since month. No, no, no. Maybe for you. Oh, right. <laughs> I've been months. going. It's been two months for me. Yes. Because I've been going nonstop since like August. Yes. End of July, early August. Yes. So anyway, in the meantime, of course, remember to wash your hands, stay hydrated and be good to one another. We'll see you next week. Bye.